finishing up a short study uh, on wisdom this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we started this because we were getting, we asked for some questions from the congregation. What do you have questions about? And a lot of the questions that came in were focused on the idea of how do we discern how to live? How do we become wise people? And we talked about how Jesus is the ultimate example of wisdom. He is the wisest man that ever lived, and he is a wisdom teacher. He teaches us a certain way, and he expects us to be wise people. We talked about uh, different ways that we get wisdom, and some of those ways are really foundational to our faith, like Scripture, and some of those ways, like social media, are, are things that we should dip into occasionally but not build our world around. Uh, we talked about how um, since Scripture is foundational, we need to understand how to use it. It's a tool that we're supposed to glean from and learn wisdom, and, and there's different ways that we need to do that. And this week, what we're going to talk about based on the idea that Scripture is our foundational source of wisdom and it is the tool that we're supposed to use to gain wisdom, that can be kind of tricky, so we're going to get real practical and talk about some tools for how to get the most out of Scripture. But first, we're going to get a running start at that in First uh, Timothy chapter 4. We, I had Bryn read the whole chapter because it, it all kind of ties together. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, we're going to be on page 1052 in the Pew Bible. Can you think of a time, maybe, maybe as a young child or as a parent with a young child, where you learned about cars and the dangers of the street? I remember with both of my children getting down to their level and saying, do not cross the street. Do not step off this curb. It's dangerous cars are coming, you don't know, you can't see them, they will kill you, do not leave the yard. Scary. Child abuse. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate that. Paul says, now the Spirit explicitly says, this is what the Spirit of God is doing. He's getting down on his knees and he's saying, children, listen up. This is very important. In the later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy, his, his disciple, his apprentice. Timothy, Paul is in prison. Timothy has been sent to a city called Ephesus to help their church get through some stuff. And so he's coming in to work through some things, and Paul is sending this, his, this letter to give him some counsel, to give him some advice. And Paul has this expectation, you see it throughout his letters, that he is living in the later times or the last days. There's this period of time which is kind of the culmination of history where Jesus is spreading his kingdom around the world before he returns to collect those who belong to him. And we're living in that time right now. So this warning is, is for Timothy, for the church of Ephesus, but it's also for us. Some will depart from the faith. 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, you'd think the teaching of demons would involve like tarot cards and seances and like going out in the woods to sacrifice a goat. But that's not how the devil gets under the skin of Christians. Look at what what Paul says. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. See, Paul says these doctrines of demons, these things that you need to watch out for, they're things that just make you feel a little better than everybody else. Oh, you know, we've given up marriage because marriage is worldly and it's, it deals with the physical and we're spiritual people. This was a common teaching in, in Timothy's day. Or, or we don't eat those foods because those foods are unclean and dirty and we are pure beings. Some of you know some vegans like that. Not, not all vegans, just, just some. But that's how insidious the devil is, right? He, he, he teaches these things that just separate us and make us feel superior and feed into our pride because most of us, if somebody walked up and said, like, I'm just gonna go sacrifice to the goat God in the woods, like, you'd, you'd know, you'd see a red flag there. Like, I don't know that I'm into that. But he's subtle. And he teaches things that sound right, kinda, but they lead you astray. Everything is created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. And then what is Paul's anecdote for this attack from the enemy? If you point, verse six, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Wisdom from the word of God. Of God. If we are people that are saturated in the word of God, we will be protected from voices in our culture, even voices in our midst that would lead us astray. And he tells Timothy, hey, you need to teach the people in Ephesus the word of God. But look at verse seven, have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. There is a whole category of things that are just foolishness. They're just a waste of time. They're just arguments for argument's sake. We all run into them. We all come in contact with them. I'm not going to make a list of them for us, but there are just things that like we could just go down that rabbit hole, but they're just dumb. And they don't really have anything to do with the important things in our lives. And Paul says, just don't even, don't even engage. Just, just don't even deal with it. Don't go out of your way to prove people wrong. Just don't have anything to do. And then he says in verse 8, For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Going to the gym is good. Studying the scriptures is better. Now, I know people take this verse to like not, as an excuse to not go to the gym. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think 
think uh, supporting your physical health is a good thing, and, and we're called to steward our bodies well. Um, but his point is that someday this body will break down, and until Jesus restores it and gives us a new body, we're always fighting a losing battle there. But by spending our time exercising godliness, studying the scriptures, being with God's people and God's community, and building ourselves up in the teachings of the gospel, that wisdom will carry us forward forever. Verse 10, for this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of the who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul says, we have put our hope in the living God. For for those of us that are Christians this morning, that have pledged our allegiance to Jesus, that have asked to be forgiven from our sins and adopted into God's family, nothing else is going to save us. And I hope that's where you are today. Are you in a place where if God doesn't come through for you, your life is wrecked? Or do you have backup plans? In case this whole Jesus thing doesn't work out, I've got a little money tucked away. Maybe, maybe this other worldview might work out for me. I'll just go back to doing my life the way I used to back then. Paul is a good example of this. He gave everything up for Jesus. He gave up his reputation. He gave up probably his family. Um, it's likely that Paul's um, community completely disowned him when he became a Christian. He says in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are of all people the most to be pitied. This is just a huge waste of time if this doesn't turn out to be true. And that's, that's what God asks us to do. He asks us to step out and give everything we have to following Jesus. There, there's no plan B. Verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So there's a lot in there that we could focus on, but the main thing that I want to say is that we aren't all leaders in the church this morning. Some of us, um, I have a role, a leadership role in this church. Some of us Uh, Others of us have roles of leadership in this church. Um, John is an elder like I am. We have community group leaders. We have people that lead in Sunday school classes. There are all kinds of leaders in our church. But I think regardless of whether you're a leader or not, Paul's advice is super helpful. And so we're going to get real practical this morning. We're going to talk about ways, uh, specific ways to get better at studying God's word. And then we're going to talk a little bit about doctrine, which is a fun, scary word that we'll unpack in a few minutes. So look at verse 13. Paul says, Timothy, until I come, while you're you're helping the Ephesians, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Three things, public reading, exhortation, and teaching. So hopefully you got a handout when you came in. I've got a list of three categories on that handout, uh, reading, exhortation, and teaching. The first one is public reading. So here's the thing. In Ephesus in the first century, they probably had one copy of the Bible. 
They didn't have the New Testament. Maybe they had a couple letters from Paul and, and maybe a gospel or two, but they had the whole Old Testament and they had one, most likely. And a lot of the people probably didn't know how to read it. Uh, it it might have been in Greek. It might have been in Hebrew. Who knows? It would have been cherished by the church community. And it's Timothy's job to make sure that it gets read, that we read the Scriptures. And so he would get up and he would read the Scriptures, or he would assign somebody else a, a text to read in the church gathering. We should be people in the 21st century that have the benefit of probably all owning a Bible or multiple Bibles or, uh, you know, a thousand different translations on your phone to reading the Scriptures. We have more access to the Bible than any generation in the history of the world, and we should be reading. So I wanted to give you an example of of the Scriptures in case um, you've never seen the Bible. Here's, Here's a picture of the Bible right here. Everybody good with that? <laughs> that's, um, that's called, um, uh, what is that called? P37. It's a papyrus from the second century. It was found in a jug buried in the sand in Egypt. It's hard to read because it's old and it's kind of torn, so I kind of cleaned it up on this next slide. Is that better for you guys? You guys got that? <laughs> Yeah, so it's Greek. Um, It's Matthew 26. And the point I'd like to make here is we we all need help reading Scripture. Unless you are fluent in Koine Greek or ancient Hebrew, you you can't read the Bible. And we, we forget that because we all have English Bibles. But English Bibles are the work of sometimes hundreds of men and women that dig in the dirt to find manuscripts like that and that pull the manuscripts together and study them and learn the languages and figure out how to translate them into the language that we can understand. And so as as people that probably don't have a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, we need some tools to help us read the Bible. And that's what this first list in your handout is. It's tools for reading the Bible. And the first tool I have listed is a good English translation of the Bible. And, and people ask sometimes, what's the best translation of the Bible? And the best one is typically the one that you will read. Uh, I was talking with somebody a couple months ago, and they had just come to faith in Christ, and they had a King James version of the Bible, and they didn't know anything about anything, and they opened it up to Genesis chapter 1, and they read it in the King James, and they're like, I have no idea what this means. I get that because the King James Bible was common everyday English 400 years ago. It's a great translation if you like it. It's very, it's very poetic. If you grew up that way, maybe you've, you've memorized all the verses in the King James. That's awesome. But if you don't understand the King James Bible, don't read the King James Bible. Read a Bible that you understand. I listed some. We use the the Christian Standard Bible in our pews, and that's what I teach from. I like it. It's a good translation. There's also a lot of other good translations that you may have. Read the Bible that you understand, that you engage with, that makes sense to you. We were talking in our community group a couple weeks ago about an experience of, of just being shamed over your Bible translation. Oh, don't read from that. Don't listen to people that tell you that. 
There's some Bible translations out there that are junk, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of really good ones. And there's a list on your handout of really good ones. The second tool on my list is a concordance. Your Bible might have a concordance in the back. A concordance is um, a list of where specific words appear in Scripture. So if you want to go, you know what, I want to learn about love. So you go to your concordance. And in the back of your concordance, it says love. And then there's all these verses that show you where love appears in your Bible. And you can go to those passages and look up different things that talk about love. It's a huge tool for helping you understand the Bible. There's a difference, though, between a concordance and what's called a lexicon. A lexicon is a fancy word for a dictionary. A dictionary will tell you what the word is and what it means. A concordance just tells you where that word shows up in the translation you're using. So, for instance, if you look in your concordance for the word love, you'll find all the places that the Bible uses the word love. But there's like four different words for love in the Greek language, and they all mean different things sometimes. And so you might misunderstand a certain kind of love if you don't have a dictionary that says, well, in this verse, this word for love is agape or phileo or whatever. So a concordance is good, but be careful how you use it. The third thing is software. Um, Logos Bible software is a great um, piece of software that I use, and you can get into it for free. It comes with a concordance and a lexicon and search tools. You just like type a word or a phrase or a verse into the search bar, and it comes up with all these resources about the original languages, and it's got like there's a guy that pronounces all the Greek words for you so you don't look foolish when you talk about them. And it's, it's a really great tool. If you want to dig into reading your Bible a little better than just the surface, Logos is great. And then the last thing on that list is books. I've got a list of some books. These are all books that I have experience with. And they're all about the mechanics of the Bible. If you want to learn about genre and style and um, how to understand different Greek terms and things like that, check out one of these books. Um, They are all really helpful. We should be people that are reading the Scriptures. But then look what Paul tells Timothy next. You should devote yourself to public reading, but also to exhortation. Exhortation is helping someone do something that they know they should do or want to do, but they can't get up the courage to do so. We just got a new puppy on Easter, and uh, his name is Eustace, and he's fun. (laughs) But he came into our home, and we have a step to get out of our front door. And we had to take him outside to go to the bathroom. And he was having a really hard time getting down this step because it was like, I mean, it was that far down and he couldn't do it. And he was stuck and he was looking and, and you could tell he wanted to go. And we were calling him, come on, Eustace, come on. And he was like wagging his tail and freaking out about it. But it was a long way down. And we had to just kind of like shove him. And then he, he kind of lands on the lower step and he figures out that, oh, I can do that. And now he's, t- he's going up and down steps all the time. That's exhortation. When I know, I mean, I, I really need to improve in this aspect of my life. Or I really need counsel in this area, and I, I don't know how to do it. If we are Christians, we are people that want to do what's right. We want to follow God, but we need help. 
So the next section of your handout is tools for exhortation. Um, to, exhortation tools are usually written at what's called like a popular level. They're easy to read. They have a, books usually have a lot of short chapters, lots of personal anecdotes. They don't, don't usually have footnotes, things like that. And they often do a really good job helping us with an issue or a problem or training us in a specific skill. I have listed a, a daily devotional that I subscribe to by a pastor named Sky Jatani. I really appreciate it. Then there's a list of books on, on transformation in particular areas. I have one on just sinful habits. Uh, if you're struggling with anger or bitterness, weariness, worldliness, hurry, busyness, wisdom, a uh, book for self-discovery, a book about the Holy Spirit. Um, there's even one about overcoming sexual assault. All of these books kind of hone in on a specific area of life and they offer exhortation. This is what this is about. This is how to get through it. This is what God says about that. And then the second list is, is just other subjects, marriage, relationships, parenting, prayer, evangelism. A lot of the books we have in our lending library fall in this category. They're things of like, hey, I want to learn about this thing, or I'm having a challenge with this. How can I find help? Um, some things about books for exhortation. Oftentimes, they're written by, by pastors. Um, they're written to be easy to read, which is great. Sometimes, though, books like this are just like sermons with filler. Oftentimes, famous pastors write books, um, and I'm kind of cynical, but I kind of think it's just because they want to make money. Um, so they have a sermon series that's great, and, and they take it to a publisher, and then somebody fills in a bunch of stuff to make it 200 pages long, and then they, they publish it. Some of those things are great. I have some in my library, and I've benefited from some of those books, but some of them are just kind of a waste of time. So you just kind of want to be wise. Like, what is, what is this book about? What does it come from? Who's writing it? Sometimes you'll find in books like this that the author has figured out the way to do something. Another, um, uh, the, I, I've, been, I've been studying the scriptures and I've unlocked the secret to this. And my methodology will transform your life. Does anybody remember the prayer of Jabez from a number of years ago? Some, this obscure verse in First Chronicles that this guy prays and, this guy, and, and the book is written and like, if you pray this prayer, everything about your life will change. You will be healthy and wealthy and all of these things will go well for you. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. And then another thing that you have to do is you have to be aware of when books, especially at this level, kind of misuse the original languages or the culture of Scripture Oftentimes, popular authors make bold assertions about the Greek and the Hebrew, about ancient customs, and then they don't usually use footnotes, so you don't really know if what they're saying is true. If an author's entire argument rests on some obscure fact that they don't back up, you should at least look it up to double check. How many have heard, I, I ran across this this week, how many of you heard that... Um, in the ancient Near East, if a sheep wandered away from the shepherd, the shepherd would take their rod and break the sheep's legs and then carry the sheep on its back to teach the sheep to stay close to the shepherd. I've heard this growing up and it's, you know, and so God, he may break your legs and carry you to make sure that you stay close to him. That's not true. 
Shepherds in the, in the, near, the ancient Near East, they didn't do that. That's not what the rod is for. The rod is to protect you from lions. But entire methods of discipleship are built on these ideas that kind of sound good, but they're not really true. And then they just get passed along. You hear it from a a pastor who passes it along to the next generation of pastors, and they just get spun around. And so these kind of books are, are just breeding grounds for misinformation sometimes. And this is something oftentimes that popular level writers do because pastors, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but pastors don't typically have a really strong understanding of the Bible. And you'd be like, what? That doesn't sound right. But think about this. A pastor, if they've, if they've been to seminary, if they've studied, they've, they've been taught how to lead a church. And part of that is you know, administrating an organization. Part of that is counseling. Part of that is managing groups. Part of that is conflict resolution. Part of that is homiletics, sermon preparation. And then part of that is studying the scriptures. And so oftentimes, pastors, myself included, have a little bit of a working knowledge of ancient things, and then we run with it. And I'll say, I do this sometimes. I'll spout off a Greek word, because I think it's important. And when I do that, if I don't back myself up, you should feel free to call me on it, because I could be wrong. And some of you have called me on it. Like, hey, I don't really like it when you just say the Hebrew says. Like, great, let's talk about it, because I could be totally wrong. But when it's a book, it feels like really, well, he wrote it down and he got it published, so it must be right. <laughs> but it's not always right. So books for exhortation. What I, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't know how. These are really good resources. All the resources on this page are things that I've interacted with, that I have appreciated. But then Paul tells Timothy, public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Now, teaching can be similar to exhortation, but it can also be very different. For our purposes, I'm going to define teaching more academically. And here's the thing. Like, I grew up in a a church culture where it was really important to study the Word of God. But it was also kind of communicated that if you go get an education to study the Word of God, you're going to be led astray, and you're not going to be a good Bible teacher anymore. And it's true that that happens. I mean, some people go off to university or seminary or to get their PhD, and they decide they don't want to be a Christian anymore. I mean, I think that happens in no matter what field you go into. But there are so many faithful men and women that have devoted their lives, their time, their money to this deep study of God's Word, and they are a gift to the church. And I want to be careful, like, we can and we should all learn from the Scriptures. You should, on your own, open your Bible and believe that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you and teach you. We should gather in small groups of of people that are, are just... Christian people trying to figure it out and go like, open the Bible. I don't know, what, do you, what does it say? What do you see? And, and, and wrestle with that together. We should sit under good teaching in our large gatherings. But we would be foolish to think that we have the same breadth of understanding as people that have dedicated everything in their lives to digging deeply into this text. I kind of feel sometimes like I'm like a high school 
or junior high biology teacher. Like, I went to school. I learned some things. But more or less, I'm just passing stuff through to you guys. Like, I study all week. I try to learn. I try to figure out what this text is saying in its original context and how to apply it to us today. But I need the tools of people that have gone before me in order to do that. And so this list of teaching resources, there's some podcasts, there's some uh, authors that I listed who have a variety of books, and then there's some commentary series. And so not all of these things are going to be in total agreement. That's, that's kind of scary sometimes for, for us if, if we get into a place where like, I believe this about this issue, but this other person over here, they believe this other thing about this issue. And so now there's confusion. But that's okay. Even like high-level theology is done in community, and it's been done this way for 2,000 years. People write papers, and they publish books, and they give lectures, and then they, somebody responds, and they clarify their arguments, and it's this process, just like any other discipline, of clarifying your thoughts. So the question then is, how do, how do I know what's right when we study things that are different from what we believe? And I've got this quote from Tim Keller He says, when you listen and read one thinker, you become a clone. Two thinkers, you become confused. Ten thinkers, you'll begin to develop your own voice. And two or three hundred thinkers, you become wise and develop your voice. And and his point, I think, is pretty obvious. We all know somebody that's like a devotee of one person. Like, they read everything that this person comes out with and they don't read anything else. They follow this person's podcast or Instagram feed and they model their entire life about this person and they are sold on this person. But then if you want to break out of that, if you, if you, if you want to find another side of the story and you listen to two opinions, well, then you just don't know what's true anymore. And this is where we find ourselves, I think, in our larger culture, right? Like, we, I listen to Fox, and then I listen to MSNBC, and now I have no idea what the truth is. But Keller says, but then if you, like, listen to more people, if you find, like, nuanced views in different categories and, and different perspectives and start to, like, see this as not just two polarities, but as a kind of spectrum of understanding of things, you begin to figure out, okay, I think this is where the truth lies, And that's what happens when you read more academic things, when you listen to more academic podcasts, when you dive into like a scholarly Bible commentary. If you've never never, uh, read, uh, some of you guys have been to Bible college, so I know you have, but if you've never read a a Bible commentary that's, that's got like the Greek text in it and just assumes that you know how to pronounce the Greek alphabet, like, it's like, I don't know any of those letters. They're all weird squiggle marks. What does that mean? They're fun. It takes work. You gotta, you gotta, there's big words, <laughs> you gotta study, but it gets to the heart of this book that from people that actually spend their lives studying it. Like the guy that writes the Hebrews commentary that you buy, all he does is study the book of Hebrews. Like that's his life. Things to be aware of if you are interested in teaching resources. You'll find that academic resources are less explicit about the truth. And what I mean by this is, if you are a scholar, if you have a PhD, you live in a world where other scholars in your same discipline are not Christians. There are New Testament scholars that are not followers of Jesus. They're just interested in the Bible. 
and they don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if you're a PhD New Testament scholar, you're going to write resources that allow skeptical people to engage with you. I like to read scholarly works by Christians. I, I get the most out of works from some of these, some of these, all of these scholars on here are Christians. But if I read a, a Bible commentary by a man or a woman that I know loves Jesus, I find that the most helpful. But I have to remember that they're writing for people in their audience that don't know Jesus. And so they're making arguments that are gonna let people get a, a, like an entry point into the discussion without immediately shutting them down by talking about miracles or the supernatural. So for instance, um, I have a Matthew commentary that, that will talk about how Jesus claims in this passage that he is the Messiah. But the author of the commentary won't say, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Whereas in a more popular level book, that's a book for exhortation, the author will say that. That doesn't mean that the author doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's just that he's not engaging in that way. Second thing is academic books, scholarly books, aren't always strong on application. Um, sometimes commentaries will tell you what the text is supposed to lead you to do, but most often they're there just to tell you what it says, to tell you how to interpret the words. Scholarly books also, they don't shy away from difficult ideas. Usually popular level books, they tend to ignore parts of scripture or biblical studies that are hard to wrestle with. Scholarly books don't do that. If you read a big commentary, you might be presented with some ideas that you've never heard before. I want to give you two that I've run into recently. In our study of the Gospel of Matthew, anytime you study the Gospels, people start talking about what's called the Q document. Who's heard of the Q document? Some of you. Okay. So Matthew and Luke seem to take a lot of their content from Mark. But then they also share content with each other that they don't take from Mark. So some Bible scholars 200 years ago thought there must be this other gospel that we don't have that Matthew and Luke took their material from that doesn't match Mark's. I don't know if that's true. I don't think it's a particularly good um, theory. There's a lot of scholars that don't believe it anymore, but it's a real theory that's out there. And so if you read a scholarly Matthew commentary, they're going to talk about Q. And you have to be like, what's Q? What's this other gospel that we don't have anymore? It's like, no, we, well, we never had it, but it might have existed. And you kind of, you learn this stuff. And does that mean that the Bible's not true? Like, no, it doesn't mean that. It just means that there's this thing out there that you're going to be exposed to. Another example, in, in our study, we're going to start Genesis in a couple weeks. Uh, as I've been reading Genesis commentaries, they've been talking about what's called the documentary hypothesis. Or uh, you, you'll hear it uh, abbreviated J-E-D-P. And that's this theory that the first five books of the, Mo of, of the Bible that traditionally have been ascribed to Moses, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This theory, again, a couple hundred years ago, no, we didn't. Four people wrote it. Um, the J guy, the E guy, the D guy, and the P guy, and it's not important what those stand for, but they see differences in the text and they ascribe them. Well, this guy uses this name for God and this guy uses this other name for God. And again, I don't really think that's a very good theory. I think you can use multiple names for God and still be Moses. I don't know why Moses doesn't have the ability to do that. And we're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks when we talk about who wrote Genesis. But it's out there. And if you read a scholarly article about 
Genesis or you listen to the Bible Project podcast that is always talking about Genesis, that stuff is going to come up. And just one more thing when you're talking about teaching resources, academics, scholars, they have advanced degrees for a reason. I, I have conversations with people sometimes and they, they have this idea and it comes from like, you know that website that hasn't been updated since 1998 and it's still hosted on GeoCities and like, and like look this, I found this online, you should read this, it'll blow your mind. I don't, you know, and who, who wrote this? I don't, it's, it's not attributed to anybody. Like it's, it's, it's super, I mean, it's really interesting, but like, I don't know who this person is. <laughs> That's a really bad place to get your theology. If, if, you, if you don't see an author who probably has some advanced degrees and they're giving like in-depth Hebrew language studies, you should ask questions about that. These resources are, um, like I said, podcasts that I find helpful. This is all just stuff that I've personally interacted with. There's tons more stuff out there. We live in a culture that is um, more Bible information soaked than any culture ever. But these are just things that I, I like, authors that I've interacted with. The Bible Commentary series, they're series where there is a separate book for each book of the Bible. So if you want to study First Peter, there's like a whole like 300-page book all about First Peter. If you want to study Matt, I have two Matthew commentaries that are 1,100 pages each. So like it goes deep and you can go really, really deep if you want to. And I would encourage you to start doing some of that. And, and maybe, maybe it's pretty um, intimidating, but I think we're supposed to be people that learn the scriptures. Timothy, until I get there, devote your time to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things, be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Okay, so this is the last thing we're gonna do today and it's the last part of your handout. It's, it's titled A Framework for Life and Doctrine and this is something that I have taken from Dr. Gary Brashear's who is a theology professor at Western Seminary. A lot of times we get confused about the things we believe because we don't understand how strongly we should believe them. And this framework is really helpful for this. Dr. Brashears has four categories for doctrine. He says there should be doctrines that we die for. There should be doctrines that we divide over. There should be doctrines that we debate, and there should be doctrines that we decide for ourselves. So we're going to do a little bit of uh, congregational participation here. Doctrines to die for. These are, there are divides between Christian and not. There are things that like if you don't believe this or you do believe this, like you, you just can't be a Christian. That's not what Christians believe. What are, what are some die-fors? What do you think? Jesus rose from the dead, right? Like, that's an important one. Like, it's all through the Bible. If you are not okay with this man was dead and now he's alive, well, I don't really believe that. I don't think that's true. Like, then you're not a Christian. I love you. 
You can be a part of our gatherings. We want to pray with you and, and, and be your friend and get to know you, but that is not what a Christian believes. What else? Jesus is Lord. That's a good one. What else? There's one God. Yeah. Yeah. You, there's, not, there's not a thousand different ways to God. You, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, we, we love people of different faiths. We want to be a part of a pluralistic society where we can celebrate our faith openly and other people can as well. But at the end of the day, I don't follow the teachings of the Buddha. The, the gods of the Hindu faith, I do not believe are real. Allah in, uh, in Islam is not the Lord. And those are things that, that divide us as Christians. The creeds are a good place to start. In our community groups, we're working through the Apostles' Creed. The creeds are kind of things that everybody in the church got together and said, this is what it means to be a Christian. We can fight about all these other things and have different opinions about this, but, but this is what it is to be a Christian. I've got uh, the triune God is the creator, uh, the divinity and humanity of Jesus the physical resurrection of Jesus, the future judgment of the wicked, forgiveness and adoption through Jesus. We can't can't come to faith in Christ by the works that we do. Like all of those things are things that define what it means to be a Christian. Doctrines to divide over, the second category. This is, um, I can't work together with you in a single community of Christians, either practically or because I have such a strong conviction. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but there's something standing in the way of our fellowship. What do you think are some divide over doctrines? Baptism, yeah, that's a good one. Like if, if you come to our church and you have an infant and you want us to baptize your infant, we will not do that. We are a, what's called a credo baptismal, baptismal church. We believe that you get baptized when you s- decide to follow Jesus. Now, the Presbyterian church, full of godly people, some of the authors that I've recommended to you are Presbyterians, they will baptize infants because they believe baptism works differently. So if you believe in infant baptism and you want to be a member of our church, either you can't or you're just going to have to be okay with waiting until your children accept Jesus because it's a divide for. What else? Homosexuality. Ooh, that's a good one. That is, depends on what you mean by that, I think, because that it exists. Yes, that is a divide for it. No. <laughs> uh, the definition of marriage. How about that? How about that? We believe that marriage as instituted by God in Scripture is a lifelong covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. Outside of that framework, we don't think sexual activity is beneficial for human flourishing. So if you disagree about that, you're welcome to be a part of our community. We love you. But we're not going to marry you if you are a gay couple. And that's a, that's a really hard thing today, right? Right? Because that's a real hot topic. Nobody, nobody out in the world cares about baptism, right? <laughs> but they care about gay marriage, and they care about 
all kinds of other things that are happening in the LGBTQ world. And we need to be people that love everyone and invite everyone to participate in what we're doing serving King Jesus. But at the same time, just like any other behavior that Scripture says, hey, this isn't good for you, we don't believe that that is good for us either. And we want to flee from that. We want to do what we can to hold each other up and give each other the tools to protect ourselves from that for those of us that struggle with that kind of sin. What's another one? We'll do one more. What's that? Oh, dying on the cross for us. That's an important one, isn't it, Isla? Yeah, that's a really important one. It's good. I have um, the role of women in leadership. It's another hot button, hot button topic. We are a church that believes that women should be in every capacity a leader in the church except for elder. We see elders laid out in Scripture as an office for men. If you are a, a woman who has leadership gifts, we want to figure out how to make that a reality for you in this community. But we also see elders being limited to men. Ecclesiology, how the church is led, that's another, another one. If some churches are led by a single pastor... And everybody just kind of does what the pastor says. Our church is led by a board of elders who are all shepherds, pastors, and we, we work as a team. Some churches are led by a higher authority, like the Catholic church. The Pope is in charge of the Catholic church. And whatever he wants to have happen, it filters down into the local parishes. Uh, the charismatic gifts. If you speak in tongues and you come to a church that doesn't, believe that tongues is a valid expression of the power of the Spirit, you're going to be asked to sit down. You might be asked to sit down here if you're obnoxious. <laughs> Come to prayer on Thursday nights and speak in tongues. <laughs> you're, it's totally fine. The kind of liturgy, like, you know what? Your rock and roll music really bothers me. I can't worship here. I just, I cannot get in touch with God in this environment. Well, I'm, you know, okay. Then maybe this church or that church isn't good for you. That's not a doctrinal issue, but that's a practical issue. I can't be a part of this community because of that idea. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, thanks, Jackson. Third category, doctrines to debate. This This is, we're brothers and sisters. We see things differently. We open our Bibles over a cup of coffee and we hash it out together. Maybe we change our minds, maybe we don't, but does it really matter? These debates are important, but they're not important enough to threaten our relationships. What are some debate for doctrines? The rapture. Yeah, when is the rapture? Is there a rapture? I don't know. Let's talk about it. What else? Predestination. Yeah, Calvinism, Arminianism. How do, what are the mechanics of how people get saved? Can you lose your salvation? That's, you know what, like we've been fighting about that for like 600 years. <laughs> But every first-year seminary student has figured it out. (laughs) Give me one more. Creation, yeah. A couple weeks, we're going to get into Genesis. How did that work? Was it millions of years? Was it six literal days 6,000 years ago? Was it a mixture of both? We'll find out. No, we won't. (laughs) 
<laughs> we will debate. <laughs> yeah, these are all things that we should feel the freedom to lovingly argue over. Some of us don't like to argue. I do. I, I, like, I like having a good debate. But as long as, we're, as long as it's driving us into the Scriptures and not away from the Scriptures, I think it's a good thing. Doctrines to decide for yourself. What I do or I believe about this is just between me and God. What are some decide-fors? Alcohol. That's a good one. It used to be in a lot of the American church, alcohol was a no-go. You cannot drink and be a Christian. That's never really been the thing for the global church. Like, Europeans look at us and go, like, what is your problem? We, had a, it's a, it, we have a very culturally um, uh, influenced temperance movement with the, the prohibition of alcohol uh, back in the day, and, and there's a lot of cultural baggage that goes along with that. And, and, but recently, churches have, have decided, hey, maybe, you know what, since the Bible talks about alcohol as a gift to humanity more than it talks about alcohol as a danger, maybe our position shouldn't be so rigid. Now, the Bible is clear that we shouldn't be getting drunk. If you're out partying every weekend and coming home just hammered, like, that's a sin issue. You've given yourself over to something that you need, that has a hold on your life. Uh, if, you, if you have a history with alcoholism and that's something like, this is really dangerous for me, you should stay away from that. But yeah, like, should I drink alcohol is a question of personal decision. Is this a freedom that God wants me to have, or is this something that I should abstain from? Personally, I've been, I've been a part of churches that, that actually ask you when you become a member not to drink alcohol. I worked for the Salvation Army Church for a long time, and they do um, drug addiction recovery ministry in a lot of their um, units, and so they ask all of their church members not to drink alcohol. And so that was just something that we, we submitted to because of that situation. What's another one? Secular music. <laughs> Can you listen to the Beatles or will they send you to hell? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it's a good one. Are there, are there forms of art that are dangerous? Are there forms of art that damage our souls? Yeah, there are. Is that going to be exactly the same for everyone? Probably not. Um, one of my favorite worship authors is, is a guy named Harold Best, and he talks about this young man that came to faith in Christ out of a demonic cult, and he showed up at a church and he heard the music from the stage, and it instantly brought him back to his sinful lifestyle that he had been a part of in the cult, and he, and he ran out of the church. But it wasn't rock music, it was Bach. The cult that he was in used classical music in their weird rituals, and that music was a huge stumbling block for him. But that doesn't mean, that's not anything to do with Bach. That doesn't have anything to do with what I think about Bach. That was something that he had to deal with between him and God. Other things, how we educate our children, whether we, we utilize the public school system or send our kids to private school or homeschool or these kind of things, this is something that you need to pray about and seek the Lord on and do according to your conscience and then not make other people feel bad because they chose something different. So to wrap all this up, and I know we're going long, things get messy when you put them in the wrong category. When 
Your stance on alcohol is a die for. I saw you at the pub this weekend. You are going to hell. Like that's a problem. When the things in the, in the die for category go to the decide for category, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God and you don't, but that's okay. Everybody can do whatever they want. No, they can't. I mean, we, it's a free country, but if you want to be a Christian, there's, there's a set of things that you affirm. And we have to be careful that we have these things in the right categories. And the way we get them in the right categories is we study. It takes work. It takes being in the word. It takes studying with resources from the men and women that have gone before us to understand well. And then Paul tells Timothy in verse 16, persevere in these things for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This oftentimes is an issue of salvation. People walk away from God because they are not grounded in his word. And we need to be people that are grounded in his word because things are going to come our way. Things are going to get hard in our lives and we're going to need the resource of the scriptures to work through them. We're going to be presented with things. I mean, you hear it all the time with college kids who have been sheltered from all the hard stuff their entire life. And then they go to college and they've got some like snotty philosophy for professor that's like, did you know this about the Bible? And it blows their mind because they've never experienced the tensions that exist in Scripture. Persevere in these things. Read the Bible. Be exhorted to follow Jesus and learn. Be taught how it works. We need to be people that are deeply committed to the process of studying this book. And that's just my encouragement for us all as we finish this series on wisdom. Um, It's my prayer for all of us that we would all be wise. And I I, I get the the privilege that I have to be, I mean, you guys guys pay me to study the Bible. And that's, that's an awesome privilege that I have. And I know not all of you have, well, I know you don't have the same amount of time, the same flexibility that I do. But I think that it's not just my job. I think if we all just gather on Sunday and and listen to half an hour of me telling you something, I just don't think that's going to form us into Christians in the way that we need to be formed. And so I would just encourage you, if you are not reading the Scriptures regularly, get into a habit of reading the scriptures. Find an accountability part. I was just talking with Jackson about the gym. And he's like, it's so much easier to go to the gym if you're meeting somebody there to exercise. Find somebody to read the Bible with you. Even if you're not doing it together, like every day we're gonna read this, uh, we're gonna read through this book a chapter a day and then you can call and be like, did you read your Bible today? If that's what you need, make use of that. Read books, listen to podcasts, study the scriptures as deeply as you can and go challenge yourself to go just a little bit deeper because it will make us better disciples of Jesus. It will better prepare us for the craziness that is coming at us 24 hours a day. And it will provide us more of a rock solid foundation in the work of Christ.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.